COVID is rising globally. This is a problem worldwide right now. And I think we just have fatigue. So we're kind of like, yeah, humans have the ability to normalize anything. Absolutely mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. We normalize presidents. We normalize racism. We normalize everything. We're normalizing this. It's not normal. And we're not going to return to normal until we have a, a path forward, which we just don't have right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's largest podcast dedicated to blockchain, digital assets, and fintech. I'm your host, Ahmed Belaghi. In today's episode, we have two amazing guests joining us. Maya Vijanovic, ex-CIO of Emerging Tech Globally for General Electric Digital, and Vinny Lingham, founder and CEO of Civic. We discuss how the world is becoming increasingly divided with recent events, how technologies like blockchain is increasingly become relevant with the digital identities on the rise, and why we need ethical leaders and corporations to lead us into this new generation of technology. Before we start, I want to welcome a new sponsor to the show, CoinsApp. CoinsApp is a global social payments application for cryptocurrencies based on the Dan blockchain ecosystem and payments infrastructure to empower billions of people to send money around the world in seconds. Thank you to CoinsApp for sponsoring the show. Also, I'd like to thank those who've been supporting the show and remember you can support us in any way possible. You can subscribe, rate and review the show, sharing the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. And now on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Encrypted. Super thrilled to have amazing guests on this episode. We have Vinny Lingham from Civic. Say hello. Hey, how's it going? We have Maya Vijanovic, a repeat guest. Welcome back to the show. Hey, good to be here, guys. And also we have Nick, my beautiful and wonderful co-host. Say hello, mate. Hello, guys. Nice to be back. Awesome. So, yeah, really excited for this episode because we're going to really take a deep dive into seeing how really Corona and COVID is being this chief digital officer for the entire world. And we're going to be looking to various different aspects of it as well. But before we do that, I'd like for both Vinny and Maya to introduce themselves. Um, let's go with you first, Vinny. Thanks, Simon. I'm Vinny Lingham, co-founder and CEO of Civic. It's a ambitious technology platform trying to build digital ID technologies for the world. And we're trying to recreate your wallets. You have one wallet, which is digital, sits on your device, your phone, instead of having a physical wallet with all the physical things that catch the coronavirus, like credit cards and identification, etc. So kind of forward-looking. Uh, we've been at this for a couple of years. We've built some really good tech. We've built identity.com. It's a marketplace for identity information exchange. And yeah, happy to chat more. My name is Maya. As uh, Ahmed mentioned, I'm a operational and a strategy expert in modernization of legacy systems. I've been in technology since early days of mobile payment across Africa, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. Background in cryptocurrencies and blockchain came in really early in 2010. And today we run a company that consults with large enterprises around digital transformation and implementation around hybrid cloud, machine learning, and blockchain technologies. Awesome. Great to hear. So first of all, thanks a lot for coming on. And I just want to kick this off, really. Maya, so you mentioned with your background, helping enterprises really adopt this new technology blockchain and with everything that's going on, what have your clients been saying? What is really going on in the in the enterprise space and what are people talking about? What's the, the general view? 
Yeah, it's a very good question. And my response to a lot of the CEOs and CIOs that I work with has been to pause for a minute and not do anything. And I know that may sound counterproductive, especially when you're talking to people that are senior like that, because it's all about efficiency, right? But I do think that this is what part of that efficiency definition in our work has gotten us probably to a point in our world economy social unrests and everything else is because we've been chasing efficiency for no apparent reason a lot of times. So my advice has been to pull back a little bit, put your hands in the pocket and step back and say, reassess, right? Everything that you need to do, right? Are you rushing for AI and blockchain just because it sounds sexy and everybody else is doing it, right? You know, what is your talent that you have? Do you need to upgrade and retrain your talent? Just like we upgrade our systems and our computers, we need to upgrade our human talent as well. So a lot of that has been to say, what is your core product, right? Do you really need to modernize that? How? What are the best tools and services you're going to do that with? Uh, Adjacencies, are they going to expand and change right now as a result of COVID and different products and services that the customers will need globally? So it's really number one is to step back and reassess all you have, even though you might have fires across the company. But pausing for five minutes is what's really, really needed right now. And to say, if you're in a leadership position, what technologies are going to get me the efficiency, the revenue and sustainability, right? Because that sustainability is becoming more and more of a conscious or a top of mind for a lot of these leaders than it needs to be. And certainly a new generation that's coming into these companies. So I'm getting a lot of questions around what to do right now in terms of planning, right? What does that strategy look like? And then the other part is what will the workforce look like? And then the last question, funny, which I know we'll talk about, but I I do get a lot of questions around natural medicine, longevity, and biohacking, and just a lot of questions around what is this immunity and all of which we'll talk about. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that for sure. Really interesting questions that you've brought up. And Vinny, I wanted to get to you regarding the the fact that you are in the identity space. And given how COVID has sort of impacted everything and everyone, and identity is being used as as a tracker, really, to see if people are safe. And how has that sort of impacted what Civic is looking at, and sort of your priorities as well? So. That's a good question. I think one of the things we did not expect and no one did I think worldwide is the, you know, what's happened or the advent of COVID-19 has really changed the way everyone thinks about their businesses, about thing, you know, the touch impact of certain things. So, so here's an example. Like if you asked me maybe six or 12 months ago, how long will it take to digitize identities in the world? I probably said five years, maybe seven, still to come, like late twenties, because people just, you know, very comfortable using a physical ID, give you to someone, they check it, they move in. But that's all changed now. People, security guards, companies don't want people handling and touching other people's stuff. Don't touch identities, don't touch you know, even credit cards. We need to touch those very quickly. So there's an accelerant, there's a catalyst here in COVID-19. So digital identity should be accelerated in that in the time frame we're talking about from five to seven years to 12 to 24 months. COVID-19 is still, I think, we're waiting to see there's a second wave. And if there is a second wave, how bad it's going to be. But my guess is there will be a second wave in the U.S. in particular, and it's going to be bad. And then really, really mm-hmm. means that we as a society have to move towards digital IDs quicker. And so that's really, you know, that's really our view. And, and not just digital IDs, like the privacy around your personal information, health information, et cetera, is going to come under, under scrutiny very quickly. 
you're going to get a situation where if it gets really bad and people have to start showing proof of health status to enter a building, have you had a vaccine? Have you got antibodies? You know, those sort of things. Some governments make good decisions around it, some will make bad, but the bottom line is that we've got to get to a point where all personal information is stored by the user, not the government, not other institutions, and you just show, you know, effectively what's called a zero-knowledge proof. Is a proof that you're immune or you have had a vaccine, you can enter a building, but they don't store that information on the building. And so how do you build those type of systems? I mean, well, the good news is the tech yeah. already is. So it's not a, a new technical endeavor to try and build that. We, we've built that. There's other companies that have got this tech. It's how quickly can we get governments and companies to adopt technology, which enables privacy as the priority and then secondary, obviously, the utility. So, so just jumping on that, Vinny, the technology you built today predominantly around identification of the individuals or the people they work with or they work for. How much work do you have to put in now to get it to store more intricate data around traveling or health status or vaccine status? There's minimal work per use case. So if somebody came to us and we've already got existing partners like JCI, we're working with Johnson Controls International. And as a result of that, it's very easy for us to modify the data storage, but remember all our, so for Civic, all your data is stored on your device and your devices. And so that we, we really focus on that part of the equation and we've built that over the years. So it's, it's easy to do from that perspective. Individual use cases, are we storing COVID-19 or antibodies, et cetera? You know, one or two weeks engineering work to make sure that is available in the app and there's integrations with third party providers, et cetera. But that's not the difficult part. The infrastructure around has already been built. So. Have you guys seen any cultural change in the people you were talking to pre-COVID and people you're talking to now? So future partners, identity space partnerships with governments and bodies and stuff. Has anything gone, people have said no, and then suddenly now they're available. They suddenly understand what decentralization is, considering they've literally just been decentralized by COVID. So yes and no. So that you get people who deeply understand the problem and the situation. And then you get people who kind of like they walk in the line because their boss has told them to walk the line and they got to go figure this out. And they're not sure they're buying into it, but that's just what they're being told. So it is a broad spectrum of acknowledgement of the problem. And I think the, the attitude shift has been that, okay, we have to do something versus, well, this is nice to have. But the, the spectrum of what you have to do hasn't been defined yet. I think for me, I agree with Vinny, it's a two bucket of people, one that are rushing right now and saying we have a very small window of opportunity to really not be surveilled, right? I think as Shoshana Zubanov has come up with, a, I don't know if you guys have read Surveillance Capitalism book, right? But it's, it is all about that. And you do have companies, there has been in the last, I'd say, year, and particularly last six months, there's been a massive rush and that's just an easy Google search to see around these identities and biometrics and everything from, let's say, Vinny's company, right, all the way to crazy stuff such as chips underneath your skin. So this is a massive rush. And, and if you talk to any VCs, there is a bucket of people that are investors. And certainly they're all looking at the space, right? And then there's a bucket of folks who are saying we have a small window. It's closing before we're all kind of put underneath the government foot for whatever reason. And then we can argue, right, is that good or bad? Because we're already seeing it in places like Singapore and China and other places, right? And then you've got the other bucket that doesn't 
care and will probably do anything for convenience and doesn't think about it and is not worried about it at all. And it's probably not educated, right? In the same way people were not educated how Facebook uses your own data to do what it needs to do, right? The same way people won't be educated about this. Yeah. And so how do we ensure that we do not fall under that government foot? How do we ensure that once the vaccines do become available, we don't become in an environment that there are sort of class or health, I would say, dimensions where if you're not vaccinated, then you can't be allowed in this establishment, which is linked to a government database. There are lots of people who are saying, yes, we need vaccines now. Other people are saying, no, it's just this is just another flu and it will pass by. So I'm just wanting to understand the tech does exist but it also needs a form of adoption by what we're starting to see, as you mentioned, venue with Johnson Controls International. But how can we really get that scaled up, right, across the spectrum, especially across, you know, at least Western countries who have that ability and that, that mindset to understand that, okay, we should not have medical data under centralized um, ownership. So how can we really get there? You know, I think a large part of this is going to be government regulatory driven, to be honest. Companies don't do things which are not in line with creating increased profits, just the, the nature of the, you know, the firm, and likely for them to go focus on things which create friction in their business. And you need some sort of coordinated movement. And unfortunately, that only happens when it comes to regulations and government saying, look, you know, not allowed to touch people's ID. You can't force them to give them your ID. You're not going to spread the virus more. You need to better way of testing to see, you know, to see who have antibodies, who doesn't. Like, you can't hold a massive event to 50,000 people in a stadium and not have vaccines for everyone. Now, you know, there are a lot of people who are anti-vaxxers out there. I'm, I'm not one of them. I think vaccines are tried and tested, and there is a very small rate of people who get affected either by that. I understand, but that's the greater good of humanity's concern. If we didn't have vaccines for polio and many other critical diseases over the history of humanity, we wouldn't, most people who are anti-vaxxers wouldn't be alive today anyway. Yeah. So the, the individualism that we have as people in society, we always feel that our lives are more important than the greater good of the world. And I think, you know, we take the greater good into consideration. I'll take my chances and I'll get the vaccine. I just hope that the scientists do a good job of it, obviously, but it's a risk you take as long as it's being tested and, and they're ready. That's going to be important. And so how do you go back to normal? How do you mm -hmm. go back to aircrafts that are full, stadiums that are full, events that are full? You don't. Not without a vaccine. It's just not going to happen. And so the world economy is going to be reeling from this for a while. And the Fed can print as much money as they want to profit the stock market. It doesn't mean the fundamentals are good. And so we're really in this weird spot right now where we're waiting for a vaccine. And then once, you know, I think we have, there's a pre-vaccine world and a post-vaccine world. The pre-vaccine world is like, well, what do we do? And the post-vaccine world is, okay, we have a solution. Now we have to implement it. And so once there's a vaccine that's available, it's going to take 24 to 36 months probably to mm. get 80% of the world on mm. it just because of production, distribution, et cetera. And then once it's on it, do you want your personal information all stored in the central database of your government? And then it's more the infringement of privacy that I'm worried about. Like COVID will be the first. It won't be the last uh, where we get a mass vaccine for the world. Mm. In fact, it's probably not even the first. I mean, everyone's been vaccinated for lots of other things over, over, over the course of time. But I just think that unfortunately we need regulation to get sort of a cohesive movement together. But we also have to make sure that the regulators understand that we're doing this for the sake of the world, not for their benefit. As, as government, and we've got to fight back on that front. I think there's something you said right now that I think is really important, which is you said 
there's no going back, right? And how do we go yeah. back to the stadiums and all of this? And I think this is, and, and to your question, Ahmed, I actually think there's no reversal. And I think whoever sits here thinking that we can reverse the trend, that the tools already exist, right? So if a tool already exists, they will be humans that will be trying to find that nail, right? And so if you look at things that are going on right now, even with CDC or, or PwC in Spain, I think there's a company in Europe, and I forget the name, it's going to come to me. But they are already using blockchain. They're putting blockchain in the mix with QR codes and they're specialized in certification and traceability of data. And so mm -hmm. they're working on these so-called immunity passports. And this is being done currently with CDC as a testing and then PwC is doing it in Spain already. The problem with that yeah. is what this schizophrenic behavior and the lack of understanding of the human immunology and immune system, right? Because how long do these immunity passports last? And there's been massive studies that showed that immunity against SARS lasts for about average of two years. And then what? And then exactly, you know, exactly. Right? That's the that's the problem. And and then the the antibodies that you're going to have, having antibodies that avert the actual sickness, might not protect you from infection altogether. Again, yeah. So there is not enough data about our body and immune system, which again we'll talk about it, which has diverted my attention into longevity and biohacking. But it really becomes an issue, which then is a breeding ground and a question to what Vinny said. Maybe it is about privacy, maybe it's not. But in reality, maybe not even government. It's going to be companies like Facebook and Google that have the mass attention of some sorts that are going to be able to market and promote and get into our subconscious minds to be injected with all kinds of things, good or bad, right, to Vinny's point. Because I don't also get the math of people saying, I don't want a vaccine full stop, because we know that it has prevented us from a lot of things. At the same time, the speed of innovation for vaccine currently of COVID-19 has been extremely scary and just injecting that and being first line of people without actually understanding mm. what this disease is, I wouldn't go for it. For example, I would oppose, I would go in a different direction than many. So, okay, to come back to your point, right, about the biohacking, I mean, you're amazing at tech operations. You've been looking at biohacking. What's going on there? Enlighten us. <laughs> just, I mean, quickly, it's been a personal passion. I think on the last podcast, I talked about, you know, my background in natural medicine and coming from the family of doctors, I've done a lot for my body personally. And in the last two years, I've had a pleasure to be introduced to some of the top biohackers and longevity experts in the world through a very good friend of mine, Andrew Masato. And I've just done everything from crazy ice plunges to testing a lot of herbal medicine and medicines in my body. And it's become very important right now during COVID. And it all kind of led naturally to this day where I've started to have a lot of people, dozens of people come my way to say, look, even if we don't have vaccine, I subscribe to it, not subscribe to it. I'm understanding that I need to really understand my body, my immunology. When I get sick, how can I not get affected? And so I've been studying a lot in terms of different variants, protein peptides, and food intakes, the lung functions, and etc. in order to protect yourself during these times. And I do think that this is going to become even more and more important. And there are companies that are going to be developing in this because it's all driving kind of towards precision medicine and personalized medicine. So you'll be able to, just like we are mm -hmm. able to see the genes right now, right, of the human,
human, we're going to be able to, and it's what's being done right now, sequence the actual gene of the, of the virus. And then you'll be able to say, okay, well, if you have these genes, right, Vinny, you're this way, Ahmed, you're this way, Nick, you're this way, right? And this virus particularly acts in this way, then we'll be able to give you a particular medicine for your own genome pool, right? Mm-hmm. So that's fascinating. And I do think that there's no reversal on that either. And to Vinny's point earlier, well, this is just the tip of the iceberg of the viruses, be it because we're doing the on purpose, we're developing these viruses and testing them in labs, or they're developing out of climate change or just natural progression of the earth. But understanding our own bodies, I think it becomes a part of a defense mechanism. So <laughs> I want to say something positive after all of that, but realistically, we know this is just the beginning of a lot of changes the world's going to have to deal with. So do you feel like we're able to keep up with technology and these rapid changes? And do you think the culture of governments, I'm doing inverted quotes, by the way, governments and centralized authorities are going to be able to protect us? I mean, I don't know what you think, Vinny, but that's a very controversial question, right? <laughs> it's too generalized. There's, there's hundreds of governments around the world. I don't know where any governments around the world. I don't think you can use a broad strokes view of that. I think it's ultimately it's up to the people. The people need to put the pressure on the government to do things which are in their interest. And unfortunately, I mean, what you see in the U.S. right now is the people uprising to say, we don't trust you, we need you to fix this now and not keep kicking the can down the road. And I'm speaking about the you know the Black Lives Matters and the whole George Floyd incident and, and all the riots that are going on in the U.S. right now. Like This is an example of the people putting pressure on government to fix something that's broken. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to health and medical, it's a very small percentage of the population that understands what's going on. And so you really need a couple of strong advocates at the governmental level who are strong on privacy and understand healthcare who are going to fight for us to get the government to put in the right regulations that are privacy aware and privacy centric and not create a honeypot database of everyone's personal health information. Okay, so let's... Let's do a hypothetical. What would be the perfect environment for, say, civic, med tech, government agencies, et cetera? What would that look like to you, Vinny? So for me, the government would pass a law stipulating that no company shall store or retrieve any personal health care information from a person along with their identity information. So you can check a random person walking through to see whether they've had antibodies or they've got a test done or whatever, and you can restrict access to them, but you don't need to know who they are. And so separating health status with identity is going to be critical. And you do it in a way which not from a third party, because otherwise there's correlation risk and there's abilities to map that data back. So it's as simple as you walk into an office building, the machine says, please prevent your health credentials. You scan a QR code or type of phone and you, you hand over a zero knowledge proof, which says, yes, I've had the vaccine. The machine checks and says, okay, you have go through. And it doesn't know who you are after that point, but that's the key. And so the phones are capable of doing on device ID verification and validation. So you can trust the devices to validate ID and you can trust the service providers like Civic or one of our competitors or anyone else wants to build this tech to do it. But you trust the, the technology companies to verify ID and give you back a solid result. And the result is signed by a medical institution. So they can sign it, but you don't need to know who it is. So it's like the separation of church and state, the separation of medical information and identity is critical now. 
So Vinny, I actually, I've been thinking about this a lot and some of the questions that I'm getting, if I could dissect that a little bit more. So you're saying separation of church state here is separation of your Mm -hmm. facial versus your written identity, because I can't see a time where we're going to be able to separate our facial from the identity. And No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is your face is an authentication mechanism, right? So you authenticate using your face. Your written ID is irrelevant. If I walk through a turnstile and it says, have you had a COVID vaccine? And I scan COVID next to turnstile. As long as my device says it is Vinny and therefore I'm going to release his health status to this machine and it tells the machine, okay, he's had a vaccine. There's the person standing in front of you right now has had a vaccine and he's, he's clear. It's been more than a week or whatever it is. The machine should let me through. The machine doesn't need to know it's Vinny. It just needs to know that the person who authenticated on the device had the authority to give a positive test for through. Does it make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Just so you got to separate. You got to separate, and a lot of this is machine-to-machine interfacing. And basically, machines should not be storing identity information. It should not have any information about me. Now, there could be a separate security gate that I go through at the building that says, "Please validate that you're Vinny." So I go through there. It's okay, Vinny's through. He's fine. But then when I go through the turnstile for health checks, it doesn't know who I am. And that's what the law needs to cover. It needs to basically separate identity from health status because it's a slippery slope. Absolutely. This is why I'm asking. This is why I wanted it because I see it as a massive slippery slope going forward. I mean, this is what you already have. You will not be able to put the cat back in the box, literally. Like yeah. Once it's done, it's done. You're not going to reverse. The data is going to be out there. Like Here's another example, like HIV status, right? Yeah. You know, there's another example where you could actually say, look, you know, people who there's a facility here that you have to enter and they're doing treatment, like let's verify your status or HIV for the yeah. purpose of treatment or something. Like you don't want your, your identity tied to that. Any other health issue, right? You're going into a building, you have cancer or you have whatever, and they want to verify that you're not immunocompromised or whatever the health status is. People do not want to share that data. It's personal, it's private. I mean, COVID, you can argue, yeah, it's a bit more sort of more mainstream, but there are lots of medical issues and health care that you just, you don't want any machine tracking this information. And it's already becoming an issue. This is why I'm asking, because I'm getting a lot of questions right now around the systems that have been implemented in China and also in London, right? And even here in Atlanta, I'm sheltering in Atlanta right now. I think Atlanta is number 10 in the world. China is number one in terms of the video surveillance. And then London, I think is five or six, but but I'm getting- In fact, sorry, Maya, just to like- I want to just add to what I was saying because I think it's important. So we've been looking at areas in Africa where vending machines can dispense HIV medication for people. And this HIV medication is actually paid for by the U.S. government, the various programs and other governments around the world. But the stuff gets open. It gets stolen. It gets sold to people. It gets put into the supply chain, gets disrupted. Warlords get it, etc. And then the third issue is that people who are supposed to take the medication don't take it because of the stigma attached to HIV, right? So they don't want to go to a pharmacy because it's a local pharmacy. It's in this town. If one person knows they got it, everyone knows they got it. They're very worried about these things. They don't take their meds. So can you imagine like a vending machine there where you go to the vending machine, you prove that you're eligible for the medication and you haven't received it in the past 30 days. The machine dispenses it to you and you leave and you know, there's an anonymous identifier that gets used. Now, that's an example of a really smart practical solution to solving the problem of distribution of medication to people who need it, but who do not want the stigma attached to the disease to affect their lives. And you know, for whatever reason, the community is in, it's a problem. You can solve that problem. But if you start storing that data on the machine and you start profiling people and that information leaks out, the whole system gets destroyed. 
Yeah, I think that's also a slippery slope too, right? I agree with you fully, wholeheartedly. And there are many cases like that and there are many use cases. I think just overarching question is, and not a question, it's a fact that we need to have the right people at the right institutions who will design this for the actual useful purpose and greater good, right? Because there are other use cases, just like blockchain, right? I mean, you can use blockchain in a very, very surveillance way, right? Or you can use it to liberate and to open up all of this. So I do think it's just having the right ethical leadership that it uses this for greater good versus to abuse it because technology can be both ways. Before we move on, here's a quick word from our sponsor, CoinTap. CoinsApp is a global social payments application for cryptocurrencies based on the DAN blockchain ecosystem and payments infrastructure to power billions of people to send money around the world in seconds. Huge shout out to the guys for building out their ecosystem and do make sure to keep an eye out on their app, which is due to launch soon. Thanks a lot, guys. Maya, how would you add on to this with everything that you're doing? So Vinny's got the tech to identify and also separate whether you, you have the, the checks in place and you qualify, whatever that means in the context. What have you got on your side that could be plugged into that? What, what do you mean by that? He's got checks. So for example, like Vinny was mentioned, you've got security checks and Civic can be leveraged for that. You have then confirmation of whether you have had a vaccine or not or whether you have a right to be in that space. Whatever the definition of right is, is up to the definition of the space. But you were mentioning earlier about devices embedded in the body, other types of areas that you're working on. Yeah, in terms of, I'm just getting a lot of questions right now. And I think this is where we really help companies decide on what is the best way to approach the fragmented and it's not even fragmented in my opinion is a word I use uh, quite a lot right now it's schizophrenic environment right because all of the technology and example right now Vinny gave is absolutely correct and as we need it and you will have an increase in in good things happening in the world if you use the technology correctly but you also have cases where and you will have that right we know that our data is being used to make money and this is how new business models are coming on board. I mean, I just talked to a company yesterday that actually has a AI and they've just had a breakthrough after five years of doing it. And you can literally give them a word. So let's say identity, you give them word identity, um, they're able to write articles for you completely. So AI writes an article for you and it will follow, it learns along the way, but it's able to pull the resources across the internet to do that. Now, are there biases? As I'm saying this, you guys are probably thinking, you know, this is wrong. There's so many biases here and, and it can go in so many different ways. Just like the algorithm chooses on Facebook what you're going to see, right? Because your friends see that. It's the same way that this is going to happen. And so I'm getting a lot of questions from folks to say, I do have this data, I can use it. But I also am getting smarter and smarter customers who are saying, can we make money off of this data? How do we change a business model, right? Where do we repurpose our data? And how do we repurpose the data to come up with new services and new products that we can market and that our customers can use? So it's a very fast evolving space. So what I get right now is a lots of questions. And then we get into a room and we figure out, really sift through their data and we figure out where the market fit is. 
And what are they trying to do? And there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of learning that needs to be done. So in terms of in terms of specifically what you mentioned, chips underneath the skin, it's not something I'm working on. I was just giving you a spectrum of what's happening in terms of where we're heading to. And that's a natural progression. And that was to Ahmed's question earlier. I don't see us reversing to any type of normality and to what Vinny said. I don't. I see a much more precision medicine getting in the way. I see elements, but on parts, right? Right? IOT, any any device that can have an identity, like attestation of devices, right? Mm-hmm. In IoT, this is all, it all has an identity and it all has a secondary market. And human data has a secondary market and a tertiary, right? So I think we're just down a slippery slope. And this is why I say that it's really important to have ethical leaders and ethical questioning committee and advisors that will really ask you what you're doing. Because in the end of the day, you have to really think about what you're building in the world and what you want to leave as your legacy. Yeah, that is super interesting because as I'm listening to this and just seeing everything that's happening around the world, especially as this episode was themed as a world divided, we're literally seeing the problems between China and Hong Kong, Black Lives Matter movement, the Twitter and Facebook fiasco that's happening with Donald Trump as well. And I feel that like we need more ethical leaders and more questions around ethics, especially as more and more data will be put out there. And it's very easy to go down that slippery slope because we've seen that, you know what, data can easily make money, right? People don't want to evolve away from what already works. So one thing I want to get back to, to your point, Vinny, about going to stadiums and sort of going to pubs and going back to normal life. I mean, we're seeing people still writing, still people, sort of, some people writing other forms, it's peaceful protesting, but people are going out and they don't really care. They should be caring because the COVID spikes that are happening post-protesting are going through the roof right now. If anyone's looking at the data, these protests and riots are creating spikes in COVID-19. Now, the good news is it's younger folks who aren't going to be as negatively affected as older folks. So in some way, we're building a herd immunity for the people that are part of the protest because a large percentage will recover and they'll be fine. They can get on with their lives. But you're not seeing a lot of older folks protesting right now for this and they're all locked up because they're at risk. Once you get over 45, 50, you're at risk. So it's, it's really the young folks, and they, they, they're less at risk. And so they can carry the torch, and they can go and protest, and they can do what they need to do. But there is a high infection rate post-protest. That's the data that's coming out right now that we're seeing. Now, you know, that's obviously not happening around the world. So this is not happening in other countries. They're not protesting for the same reasons they're protesting in America. But... COVID is rising globally. This is a problem worldwide right now. And I think we just have fatigue. So we're kind of like, yeah, humans have the ability to normalize anything. Absolutely anything. Yeah. We normalize presidents. We normalize racism. We normalize everything. We're normalizing this. It's not normal. And we're not going to return to normal until we have a, a path forward, which we just don't have right now. I think that's such an important what you just said, we normalize. I just kind of say we're capable of rationalizing anything. We'll do anything that will rationalize, yeah. right? So what does that mean going forward right now is, you know, it, it really requires all of us to not blame fingers for anything, right? For anything that's happening to us, but really just own our responsibility going forward. Is it staying home or is it developing reliable tech, ethical tech, right? Hiring the right people, taking consideration who you hire, the ratio, the diversity of sexes, of religions, of races. It's all up to each individual. Nobody's going to do it for you. Even if we have the so-called 
household ethical leaders, right? As Vinny was saying, we'll rationalize anything, but you have to take a responsibility on your own. And I think people that are listening to this and in general, people are awakening. And if you don't think that you have a role to play in every single decision that you make, that's pretty naive thought, right? And then somebody else is going to come and save us. We all have a burden to carry. Yeah. And you know what? To add on to that, I don't think in the entire history of man, maybe there wasn't, we weren't around for it, but there hasn't been anything that's really had the power to reboot the entire world's operating system. Everybody gets impacted, whether business or personal, and it completely changes the thinking. Some people are going to take advantage of the situation and others are going to rethink how they want to live and how they want to operate. I'm actually quite excited to see how business people, leaders change and deal with this scenario. And hopefully there's a greater good than the greater bad out there. I guess it's just governments are just there to, to try and support it, but I just don't think they can keep up. I think this is going to be too fast for them. And I don't know if it's really going to help people like us who believe that decentralization is a key component of life now. What are your thoughts on that? On the point of decentralization, let's just understand something. Like decentralization is slower, more expensive, and tedious. So it's a lot easier to go with centralized solutions and say, this is the way it is and roll it out. Also, remember the, you know, I said, talk about the lobbyists. The companies that can get money from governments are the centralized, old guard, lots of lobbyists, lots of revolving door deals, blah, blah, blah. They can convince government officials to use them. They try and test it and they're centralized. And so it's hard for decentralized companies to break in because, quite frankly, there's no financial incentive for the governments to use any startup or decentralized company versus someone they know they try and trust. And you know what? Eh, privacy, who cares, right? So if the only thing that's really better for decentralization is really privacy and independence and individuality, like on every other level, centralized systems make a lot more sense financially, yeah. speed to market, cost, etc. But this is what we're fighting for. We're fighting for privacy. I think it's super important. I think it's critical. It's a non-starter for not you know, to build a solution that doesn't have privacy built into it by default. And unfortunately... The financial incentives, we, you know, not that we would, but we can't pay off governments. We can't get the following door deals. We don't have lobbyists. We don't have those connections. So when it comes to using a small startup who can solve the problem elegantly and give people the, the independence and individuality and privacy they want versus a multi-billion dollar company which contracts with governments around the world and try and test it. But you know what? We don't really, privacy, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, you know this is the government. <laughs> so how do we win those deals? We don't. And that's the reality. We just we don't win those deals. Yeah, it's very hard. To Interesting. Get, it's very hard to sell that, right? It's very hard unless there is a very strong utility use case. There's very strong incentive play in certain. I can think of a couple of use cases, but then you have to. You really have to figure out who benefits because at the end of the day, folks can't pay attention to multiple source of data. It's very easy mm. when you come into a room and you sell one system for one point of view, one utility, and it's easier to control. Parts, humans, healthcare, decision making, it's much easier and, and it's much, much more actionable when you have well, a just, just to jump in there, you, you were at General Electric for a long time. You know what I'm talking about. Like, what edge do we have over a company like GE if they wanted to go into our space and, and work with governments on the solution? 
That's yeah, it. And, you're right. And actually at G, it was actually, if you read the history of it, part of the reason folks are saying why it did kind of go through its failure that it did is because it went from centralized Welsh running it kind of in this Iron Man pan and then ML coming in and saying, got to be centralized. And it was like a breathing organism decentralized, centralized, because the markets have been changing, because it's harder also to run a large corporation of 380,000 people by making one decision. It's very hard. It's very hard when you have different market demands, when you've got technology that is disrupting every single market of yours. And then when you're trying to move from a physical good into a digital good, your business model of a physical asset is very different than a business model of a digital Mm -hmm. asset. And so you have this schizophrenic behavior where then on top of that overlay the human behavior internally in a company of people who have been there for 15 to 20 years, and we're just human. We're all complacent. But I actually think on a larger point of this, Nick, I think it's really, really important to note that at the end of the day, I always go back to science and I go back to human cells. Human beings have ingrained, just as we can love and we can share, we have an ingrained gene and it's a gene of greed. And I go back to really when, as I've been studying a lot of this medicine and longevity stuff, I'm looking at a lot of biological behaviors and a lot of behaviors of the cells and how they work when they mutate and when the cancer cells come in and all of this. And it's just really fascinating how you can incentivize a cell to go in a different direction, right? This is where ICOs and tokenization and all this comes really interesting. And then when you inject the fear and chaos into the cells and how they behave and how they can just start attacking each other. And we can learn a lot from that. I know it may sound really odd to a lot of people, but actually to a lot of people out there who are exceptional leaders who have built some most incredible companies, this is what they study. They study the behavior of cells and biology and apply it to a human pivoting in large organizations and particularly in the times of COVID where you right now need to have every single one of your people at a workforce has to be agile. And if it's not agile, they're not going to be sustainable with the machine and they're not going to be sustainable with the times. And so I think it's, it's just a, a really interesting topic to digest for a lot of people or to read about our listeners that are going to be listening to this. Absolutely. That is actually really interesting because it's, I also think about it, at least in like, for example, what we're working on, right? It's, it's all about ensuring the user experience, for example, of crypto and blockchain becomes way easier for the mainstream to come in. But at the same time, the whole point of what we're working with, especially in this industry, is about a new realization, a new reality that, you know, there are times where you need to actually have full ownership of your private keys, for example. And that is sort of that culture shift, which not many people understand. And I think that, like, we see some solutions, for example, in this space that have done very well because they have an already big audience who are already you know, used to forms of decentralization. For example, DeFi, we've been seeing many aspects of decentralized finance picking up so much, and there's an audience for that. Albeit it's very small, it's still at least something, right? And that is still small, but it's slowly growing. And then you have, I feel, outside of the spectrum, you know, companies like Civic, where Vinny's working, is, it's all about trying to change that, that culture within these respective companies. So it will be really interesting to see like which one will come forward first as well. And yeah, I think we're just sort of going to finish. Um, But before we do, Mai and Vinny just wanted to ask, what was the one thing that you'd say shaped you to become the person you are today? What makes us become who we are today? Yeah, just one thing. Could be a factor, could be someone, could be something, could be a quote. 
<laughs> there are many things I'd say that shaped me to become what I am today. Still a lot of work, a lot of learning, but I'd say my parents installing their very young age curiosity, my yeah. bosses installing curiosity and constant kind of humility to new things. And I'd say so, so people around me who have kind of stayed curious encouraged me to be curious constantly yeah. and I've been maybe a natural trait. And I'd say my my global work, right? I've lived in 16 different places in the world. And when you live and feel the place and you work and you engage in work or school of some sorts and you mm -hmm. engage in a society of different religions and cultures and races, it opens up your eyes to patterns and to pattern recognition that I never learned in school. So ability to recognize patterns in businesses and behaviors is just been a blessing. So I'd say that. I think for me, growing up under apartheid and realizing like to be enlightened is, is I think every one of us has the ability to be enlightened at some point in their lives. The description I would use is say it's like an onion. As you peel and peel the layers back of what you think society is, you get down to the core of, of individualism. It's really about that. So, so for me, it's like I've just always had this innate sort of individualism approach to my life where I, I care about society as a whole, but I also care about myself. and trying to balance the two. And what I mean by that is just some color here, excuse the pun. I grew up in apartheid South Africa. So I grew up as a, a brown Indian sort of descendant person growing up in a place where it was like whites only signs everywhere. I couldn't go to the public pools. I couldn't go to the, anywhere, like the parks, they're all restricted. And I thought that was normal up into the age of 10. I was just like, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. And I was embarrassed to be brown in that society until obviously things changed over time. And it took a toll on my psyche and it took many years to sort of get over it. And when I looked at like, you know, when I used to watch American movies and stuff, I was always confused as to like why it's like that in America, but not South Africa, but you kind of accept it the way it is because you're nine, mm. eight years old, whatever. And as I've gotten older, I've peeled back the onion more and more. And I've realized like, now I'm looking at America and I'm seeing what's going on with Black Lives Matters and All Lives Matters. I'm realizing there's so many people who are just unenlightened. And there's just so many people who don't understand and appreciate what systemic racism is and how it's been baked into society and how much, how important individualism is. So I'm a big advocate for individualism, but you cannot be an individual unless you have privacy. So privacy is the most important part of individualism for the world. And so we need to enable privacy for everyone so that we can have a society where individualism is celebrated. And so that's kind of like what shaped my thinking. And the older I get, the more I witness things, the more I see things, the more I experience things, the more I, I try to peel back this onion to get to the root of everything. And my enlightenment really in life is that we are a society striving for global individualism. And that's the goal for humanity. Awesome. So individualism, enlightenment, and curiosity. I love asking this question at the end because it always gets to, to the root of our guests. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, guys, for coming on to the show. If somebody wants to get in touch with you guys, how could they do it? Twitter, email, what, what's the best way? Email is best for me. I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter, although I know I should be doing better in social media. But M for Maya at ogroup.io. That's M for Maya at ogroup.io. It's Vinny Liam on Twitter. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, guys. And yeah, keep safe and Black Lives Matter. Yes, have a great day. Bye -bye. Thank you, guys. Bye -bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.